We're in the second week of a series called Finally, Rejoice in the Lord. It is a six-week series of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. It's a letter written to a beloved congregation from a pastor who is in prison, as he writes, at the end of his life, really. And it's the study of, a, in some ways, a pastor and congregational relationship and an opportunity for you as a congregation and for me as a, a retiring pastor uh, at the end of February, still a few more months, to explore the question of what is a pastor and more personally, perhaps, for you as a congregation, what kind of pastor do we want? You have a pastor nominating committee who has been formed and is starting that process of determining that. And, and so we're looking at Philippians uh, with a view to how the Word of God, especially from Paul's hand at this time, speaks to that process. Last time, what we saw was Paul as a pastor who prays for his congregation and starts this letter with a prayer and prays primarily for two things, that they would abound in love, grow in their love, and that they would show forth that love in the world through what he calls a harvest of righteousness, an experience of bearing a kind of fruit that benefits the world. And so today we get a window into Paul's circumstances. I'm going to read a very long text, so prepare yourself, but hopefully I'll read it well enough that it won't completely bore you. Um, but it's the remainder of chapter 1, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And we get a window into Paul's circumstances, and it's a, a very important piece that in some ways shouldn't be broken up. Really, the whole letter shouldn't be broken up, and I invite you to just read it through. It's only four chapters, and, and do so several times during this series, because I think you'll pick up the emotions that way a little bit better. But we get a window into Paul's circumstances here. He is in prison. He is absent from this congregation, and he is working with the question of whether or not he will visit them again. And he's kind of thinking out loud about those prospects as he writes. And that's something that we can also imagine is not Paul sitting and writing this letter, but Paul kind of moving around the room and dictating this letter because that's the way he wrote his letters. He had someone taking down what he said. And he was obviously so brilliant. I just, I, I'm amazed sometimes at reading this, especially as I think about that form of composition. I'm sure he edited it before he sent it, but probably not very much because paper was too expensive to do much editing. So, but it is a pastoral admonition that comes after a reflection on his own situation. And it's the pastoral admonition to stand firm in their faith, whether he's with them or not. So let's look at Philippians 1 verses 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 30. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness 
and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering and my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing for he has graciously granted you the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, draw us into a deeper awareness of how you are with us in this moment. Help us to hear the invitations that you have for each one of us and empower us by your Holy Spirit to take up those invitations, to receive them as a gift from you, and so give witness to your work in our world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was a political science major in college. So I'm going to take the liberty of commenting on politics today, <laughs> violating that age-old rule that I'm not supposed to do this, but I think you'll find that this is an okay way to do it. Sometime in my adult life, I'm not sure when I noticed it, but the, sometime in my adult life, the game of politics, that is the, the game of winning votes, became the game of who can state the problem in such a way as to tap into the anger of your base and win their loyalty. The task of pointing to and fixating on all that is not okay and what therefore obviously the other side has caused is what politics seems to be about. Identify the evil, 
identify the heresy that plagues society, identify the anger and fear and the sense of loss among your base, and let them believe that you hate what they hate and that you are going to do something about it if you get into office. And my question to voters on both sides is simply this, in the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? <laughs> How does the perseveration on what is not and what should not be, how does the perseveration on that help us to get to where we want to be? How does plunging into an ever deepening awareness of the problems and whose fault they are, how does zooming in on the particulars of evil and parsing the specifics of just how bad things are, how do either of those things help us in the long run to work toward achieving what is mentioned in our Constitution, something called the common good? I don't know. And it all sort of begs another question for us as people of faith, maybe a more personal question, a one that each of us could perhaps be asking. And that is, what are the things that I'm choosing to keep in my viewfinder? The image of a, of a camera and the way it restricts our view, the way it frames our view is what I'm pointing to when I talk about a viewfinder. And if we're using a motion picture camera or video camera, we, we are panning usually. Well, take this image to the next step and say, what do I stop on and zoom in on and how long do I stay there? I think that's an important question to be asking ourselves. What are the things that I'm choosing to keep in my viewfinder? What are the things on my watch list or on my listen list or that list of people who we follow, so to speak, and keep getting emails from? Where am I holding my focus and do I ever zoom out enough to take in a picture that is about something bigger than my anger or my wrath? That's the question I think we need to be asking. And just to be clear, this little pastoral tirade of mine and my admonition is not to ignore problems and look the other way and join Pollyanna in her glad game <laughs> or to somehow deny that there is evil. But it's a question of how much does our fixation on it prevent us from seeing and participating in the good thing that is being done in spite of it and that it might be overshadowing. Paul's letter to the Philippians is instructive about this process. It's instructive about the process of facing the truth of evil and yet also zooming out far enough so that we can take in a wider angle where we can see God's good. A lot of things are really bad on the surface as Paul writes to the Philippians. And he acknowledges all of them in this first part of his letter. 
things are not going well for Paul as he writes. And as he pans over the horizon that he faces, his viewfinder is taking in a lot of things that really would not engender hope if he stayed on any of them too long. First of all, he's in prison in Rome somewhere, not an ideal setting for a missionary and a preacher who needs to be with people for whom he is pastor. He's separated from them. He is literally, even though he says he's not, he is a political prisoner in some ways because he is proclaiming a different Lord than Caesar. The Christian church co-opted the phrase Caesar is Lord and replaced Caesar with Jesus. That doesn't go over well if you're trying to maintain your hold on an authoritarian power. But the gospel, says Paul, in spite of my being in prison, the gospel is being preached. In fact, it's being preached even to the guards to whom I'm chained. So that word throughout the Praetorian Guard is very clear that I am in prison because of Christ, not because of my politics. They know why I'm here. He's aware of various factions in the church that are questioning his legitimacy. And he deals with this when he talks about some preach the gospel out of love, some preach it out of envy and strife and contention. If you read the Corinthian epistles, you get a better sense of what this was like for Paul. But essentially, it was a group within the church pointing to his imprisonment and saying, now, how good is this that we have a guy in prison who's our primary spokesperson? How good is this that when we're trying to preach the victory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have this suffering one in prison who's being persecuted? How can we preach victory when our leader is obviously in the midst of defeat? But Paul says in their attempt to delegitimize me, they are still pointing to Jesus. And so I'll take it. In this I'll rejoice. He's aware that his own future is quite unstable and not sure whether he will live or die in Nero's Rome. And he will die. We know that now. He will be beheaded. He was a Roman citizen and so couldn't be crucified. But he will be martyred. He will be executed for his faith. And he says, I don't know whether I'll be with you or not. But in essence, he says, either way, this will turn out for my deliverance. Either way, Jesus will still be Lord. And he's also aware of a more specific dissension within the Philippian church itself. He'll allude to it directly or some aspect of it when he asks in chapter 4 that Euodia and Syntyche would agree in the Lord. I have no idea what the conflict is and when we get there in a couple of weeks we'll talk a little bit more about that. But there is, there is a kind of dissension uh, within the Philippian church that remains specifically unstated. We have that sense as he multiple times throughout this letter invites them to have one mind stand and to stand side by side. Yet for Paul, there is something bigger than what 
is dividing them and he invites them to zoom out and take in this bigger picture of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus. And then that leads to his pastoral admonition in verses 27 through 30. He essentially says to his people, he calls them to lead lives worthy of the gospel of Christ, to focus on their Lord and to allow that focus, that Lord of all, that really big picture, to determine how they act. And what does it consist of to lead lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, first of all, he uses that phrase, standing firm. And standing firm, as Paul used it, is not bracing themselves against the onslaught as much as it is planting their feet firmly on the one foundation that won't be shaken. You know, we love to kind of parse out the armor of God passage that Linda read earlier for us in Ephesians and kind of unpack all of the various implements. But this is Paul's masterful writing of sitting in prison and looking at the armor of those that are guarding him and attaching to those pieces of armor, not militaristic kinds of things, but things like righteousness and, and love and that the, the armor that we put on is not at all like the Roman armor, but I'm gonna use that as a metaphor to show you what's stronger than that Roman armor. And it is this way of living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm is standing on that foundation that cannot move. He also invites them to stand together. He invites them to unity, to be in one spirit, to be side by side, to be engaging the strife together, to have one mind. And we'll be spending most of our time on that one mind, which is the mind of Christ that he invites us to have. And it's also about not focusing on or being intimidated by our opponents. Paul is essentially saying your job is not to overthrow Rome. Your job is not to overthrow Rome. Everything is rooted in God's foundation is what we need to be focused on. And things that are not rooted in God's foundation cannot be sustained. Nero indeed is very powerful, but, and the Neronian persecution will start shortly, literally, as this letter is written, but Nero can't last, is what Paul says. He acknowledges that this is not easy at the end, and he says it's, it is about suffering, and as we know what suffering is basically is, is living in that space between what is what we're currently enduring and where we'd like to be. And living in the dissonance between those two things, living in that liminal space between those two things is what it means to suffer. But we're all in this struggle, says Paul. And God chose to join us and with us in that suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that next week as well. So Paul is inviting them to a bigger focus. And I wanted to read a, a section from a book that a good friend of mine, Bob Weiss, gave me. It's a historical novel called The Tremble of Love 
a novel of the Baal Shem Tov. And Baal Shem Tov was the founder in the 1700s of the Judaistic Hasidic movement in Poland. And he's figured as a kind of messianic figure in this book. And I think it kind of captures a lot of the spirit of Jesus in, in some ways, as the author tells the story of this man named Yisrael. And he is talking at one point with one of his disciples, Elias. And Elias has come to him saying, because he's really under fire in his community, not Elias, but Yisrael is under fire. And Elias points out all of the ways that he's being accused of heresy and all of the things that people are saying about him that are, that are not true. And after having that list, I'll just pick up the story. The author says, Elias suddenly felt out of breath after reciting the list of indictments. And Yisrael nodded, amusement still his primary expression. I have heard these, as well as other accusations. But Rebbe, you appear oblivious to them. I thought that maybe you had not. What I have not done, Yisrael interjected, is let them guide my course. He turned back and began to walk again. And then says this, my purpose in this world is not to fight ignorance, but to feed truth. The Baal Shem Tov, Elias had realized, had found his way to the promised land of unconditional love. He was a rare guide who did not insist that others follow him. The choice to pursue truth and to point to truth and give witness to truth rather than the choice to fight and try to eradicate evil is what Paul is calling the congregation at Philippi to as well. And this is a kind of confident gentleness that he is inviting them to participate in. A noticing of or a participation in God's transforming work right here and right now, rather than fixating on all that is wrong and needs to be fixed. A gentleness where standing firm is not holding on tighter and tighter or bracing ourselves in such a way as to be stronger and stronger against something as much as it is relaxing into the embrace of the one who will never let go of us. It's a gentleness based on that universal, huge confession about the nature of Jesus Christ that Paul gives us in Colossians 1, where he says he is before all things and in him all things cohere. All things hold together. If he is before all things and in him all things hold together, then he's even holding on to the things that we think no one should have anything to do with. Focusing on him is the invitation that Paul makes. Focusing on the truth and resting in the reality that we are being held by the one who holds all things together. Let's pray. Lord, help us live in the confidence of this 
and to understand without a doubt that the job of Redeemer is already taken. Give us the strength to rest in that and then to have a confident boldness that is rooted in the gentleness of knowing that we are held on to by you and you will not let us go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.